preaching of God's Word then is in Luke chapter 18 and verses 1 through 8. Luke 18, 1 through 8. And we've read the whole of the chapter. Notice now, to help our thoughts, verse 1 and verses 6 through 8. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Well, it's quite clear what Christ is pursuing in this passage. As it is told to us, he speaks this parable for this purpose, to teach men that they ought always to pray and not to faint. Of course, this touches something in the soul of the believer with reference to his or her own exercise of faith and prayer. Perhaps we could look back at the year so conveniently in God's providence before us this day, and we can remember seasons where our souls were impacted and affected by providences and other such things that came into our lives, and we were moved to pray and pray earnestly for the Lord's fulfilling of His Word, for His promises to be fulfilled, and for strength and grace to persevere. And yet, we can also look back and we can see seasons where we gave over, and as the text says, we fainted. How many earnest petitions might have lasted for a month, or a week, or a day, or even the second that it was uttered only to vanish because we became disheartened and fainted. Well, we can understand the Lord coming to us with a rod of iron and reproving and admonishing us and so on, and there are times when the Lord does come with firmness of speech, but here the Lord displays His great kindness knowing our frame, and gives us encouragement to persevere and to give ourselves to the cultivation of unfailing prayer. We can have to our mind, of course, admoni- or exhortations in Scripture. Paul says that we're to pray always, to never cease praying. Well, Christ is here presenting the same. But you'll notice the text presents to us this parable. The word parable means something that is thrown alongside. It's as if it's something that we look at and we can see a parallel to what the main point is, almost a spiritual mirror to see the main point. And this is what Christ is doing. So the text presents us an argument for his main purpose to teach us to always pray and not to faint. And notice the argument is from the lesser to the greater, or perhaps we could say from the bad to the good, because you'll notice this parable presents to us these two characters, a godless judge, an unrighteous judge, and a persecuted widow. And so notice in verse 2, Christ says, there was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And so in one quick description, he's presented us a man who is in all ways despicable, Toward God, he doesn't fear God. Toward man, he doesn't regard man. In other words, he doesn't love God. He doesn't love man. He is in all ways contrary to the law of God. So you remember 
that the Ten Commandments represent what it is to love God. It is the concrete display of love. And so Paul makes this point in Romans 13. You know, love is the fulfilling of the law. Because when one loves, they will have no other gods before God. They will uh, not dishonor their authorities. They will not covet and so on. Well, here is a shorthanded way to say, here is a man in all points godless. He doesn't love God, and he doesn't love man. And yet notice his position. He's a judge. He has a position of authority and influence. And it says as well, there was a widow in that city. And already we realize one who is weak, especially in that society where the dependence upon man was more prominent. So here is a widow who comes to this godless man, this loveless man, and appeals to him to execute his office. Avenge me of mine adversary. The idea is the one who is opposed to me, the one who is persecuting me. And so this is the context of the parable. Notice what happens. This judge is said not to do it for a while. We aren't told how long, but the idea is that she's coming and he's ignoring She's coming and presenting her case. She's showing her wounds. She's showing her injustices suffered. And the judge who doesn't fear God nor love man is unmoved and doesn't care and would rather do anything else than to lift so much as his little finger in assistance to this most broken woman. But notice, Christ says afterward, he said within himself, though I fear not God nor regard man, it because this widow troubleth me. She's relentless. She's unfailing. She doesn't stop. She's always coming. She's always asking and seeking and knocking. Not a day passes where I don't see her. I'm walking down the streets. I catch an eye and I try to move the other way and there I find her. I go this way out the house and she finds me there. Everywhere I go, she's ever asking. And so because I'm tired of this, because I simply want this done and away with, so I need see her no more. I will avenge her. I'll stand and execute justice on her behalf. Why? Lest by her continual coming she weary me. So these verses 2-5 through present us a godless and evil man who in the end vindicates and judges and defends this woman. And fundamental to the reasoning is she is relentless and unfailing in her requesting of these things. Now, Christ isn't saying that's what God is like. Because notice, the argument goes from the evil and the lesser to the good and the greater. Christ says, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, his own chosen ones, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. If this evil man, if this loveless man, if this wicked man will indeed answer this request, shall not God, who is good and faithful and loving, answer the requests of his people? And so Christ is presenting this argument, and yet he acknowledges how weak our frame is. Notice verse 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? The idea being, in spite of 
the constant testimony of God's faithfulness, yet man's trust in Him is so weak. Brethren, never will your faith outrun the faithfulness of God. Never will your petitions outdo the promises of God. Never will there be one who will say at the last day, I believed God to be better than He was. On the last day, it will be shown for each of us that we have believed beneath the privileges afforded to us, that we have trusted under the great measure of riches and promises afforded to us. In light of that, Christ is exhorting us that we ought always to pray, even in the midst of sorrows. Think of the widow. She had this persecutor after her, and she defenseless. She without recourse, it seems, to other hopes. And this man who was the unjust judge doing nothing for her, and yet she didn't say, well, this is my lot, I guess I'll just endure it. She continues to request. She continues to appeal. And notice Christ's connection. God's own people, He says, cry day and night unto Him, though He bear long with them, though He doesn't seem to move quickly. And so Christ is acknowledging that there are seasons where our prayers seem to go unanswered, where our earnest desires seem to be ignored. But He's calling us to a higher plane of understanding and discernment to remember that God is faithful who has promised, and He will indeed avenge them speedily. So you'll notice this tension in the text. He says He's bearing long with them, and yet He'll execute judgment speedily. The idea is not some you know, contradiction, but the enduring of length of time in this world will in the end be dealt with quickly. And so the grand change and the grand provision that is to come in the highest when Christ returns will overtake God's people instantaneously. And this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If it's true that God will on the last day execute all that He's promised, how much more should we in the daily affairs of our life be much in prayer and reliance upon Him? And so, constant in prayers before the throne of grace. We'll consider then three things to help us as we weigh this truth. First, the exercise of constant prayer. Secondly, from the exercise, the obstacles to constant prayer. And finally, the support for constant prayer. The exercise, the obstacles, and the support. Imagine that each of us, one way or another, however much we did or didn't, had some thought of what does the year to come have for us. And spiritually, there can be much benefit in considering if the Lord should give me life, you know, how would I hope to grow by His grace? And doubtlessly, each of us could say, by His grace, we need to grow in the exercise of prayer. And in the Lord's providence, we have such a passage to help us. So consider then, firstly, the exercise of constant prayer. But before we can address constant prayer, we have to address prayer itself. You know, what is prayer? Well, fundamentally, it is calling upon God and lifting up our desires to Him. So when we pray, 
we're giving expression to something that is desired. There's an acknowledgement of our weakness, otherwise we wouldn't ask. It is an acknowledgement of his ability to provide, otherwise we wouldn't ask. But it is fundamentally a drawing near to God and saying, Lord, I desire these things. Notice, for instance, in Psalm 62, this beautiful picture of prayer, Psalm 62. Much in the Psalms, of course, is taken up with prayer. But you'll notice in verse 8 of Psalm 62, Trust in Him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Notice a couple things. The way on either side of the text, there is an expression of confidence. Trust in Him. God is a refuge for us. There is a temptation for Christians to think, because I trust, because God is my refuge, I really don't need to pour out my heart. You know, it's this thought that if I really trust God, I won't be much moved. That dehumanizes what we are. We are people who have real desires. And those real desires are to find expression unto God. And so the psalmist, and of course God by the psalmist, is cultivating this approach that we would lift up our desires to Him, that the depths of our hearts would be poured out to Him. Children, think of this for a moment. You know, in the summertime when it's hot, you'll be playing with water. Hoses will be out, buckets will be out, perhaps you go to the pool, whatever else, and you scoop up the water and you pour it out. Perhaps you pour it on somebody or you're watering the plants and pouring it out. Well, if you pour it out, everything that's in it is emptied. And the idea here is all that's bound up in our hearts is in prayer poured out until it's emptied before God. And so before we can talk about constant prayer, we have to realize that the essence of prayer is the pouring out of our desires before the Lord, unto the Lord. It is what Paul says in Philippians in chapter 4. Notice, related to this theme, Philippians in chapter 4, Paul writes there at verse 6, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now notice something in the Scriptures. The Scriptures have one object for our prayers. One target, if you will. One person to whom we pray. One being. And it's God. We don't pray to saints. We don't pray unto those who have departed. You can go to what are now unfortunately called celebrations of life instead of funerals. And you can hear people speak as if their departed ones are the ones to whom they're praying. And so you can set aside even the vain superstition of false religions, and you can see sort of this overarching idea that has gripped society in our nation. And what's turned to prayer is this sort of desired expression unto departed loved ones. But the Scriptures are everywhere united in this focus. True prayer is unto God and God only. 
It doesn't go up to the Apostle Paul. It doesn't go up to Mary. It doesn't go up to Uncle Joe or anyone else. It goes exclusively to God. And this tells us of what great privilege is given to us. That we don't go to some time-bound, weak creature, but we pour out our hearts to the living God of heaven and earth. We have the privilege, yea, the commandment, to come and pour out our hearts to none less than He who is eternal and infinite and faithful and good. It is the lifting up and the pouring out of our desires unto the Lord. But for it to be true prayer, it's not the pouring out of any desire, because as you and I know, we have sinful desires. Sometimes in our shame we can think back to days perhaps when we were unconverted and the things that we would pray for being contrary to God's law. That's not prayer. That is profaning such a privilege. Notice in 1 John and chapter 5, we have this guidance for our prayers. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. John says, This is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. Now this isn't talking about the secret and decreed will of God. It's speaking of His revealed will, what He's promised, what He's commanded. We can't pry into the secrets of God's uh, decrees, but we can rest upon His promises and be guided by His providences and be instructed by His commandments. And as we ask for things according to His will, He hears us. Which, by the way, means if we ask for things not according to His will, He doesn't. So you can think of it this way. If someone were there and envious of the possession of another and prayed, God, I ask that You would allow me to steal that possession. Well, it's a desire perhaps, but it's a sinful desire. It's a corrupt desire. That's not a a, a true prayer. It's a testimony against our souls rather than for our souls. But if we ask, Lord, You have called me to honor my father and my mother. You've called me to honor those in authority over me. And right now I'm struggling to do so. Would You forgive me? And would You give me grace to grow in my honoring of those above me? That's prayer according to His will. And we are certified by none less than the Word of God that He hears us. And if He hears us, as it goes on, we know that if He hears hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. So prayer is a pouring out of our desires as informed by the Word of God. It must be offered in faith. It isn't just this rote word, right? It's a believing exercise. Lord, I see Your Word. I have these trials and I'm coming trusting that you are faithful to your word. I'm not asking in just some sort of rote lip service. I'm not just reciting things like any parrot or monkey can learn to do. I'm actually earnest in my soul, trusting your word and saying, as you've promised, so I believe. We'll get to how that can provide for obstacles, but this is of the essence of prayer. We offer things to God Trusting Him. Remember Psalm 62? Trust God. God is a refuge for us. And in between that, pour out your hearts to Him. 
And so we don't just sort of throw up, as people in this world say today, on a wish. We aren't wishing and saying, well, I sort of desire this in some way that perhaps maybe, and we qualify, 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 qualify. We come in the confidence that He who is promised is faithful. And so we ask believing. And as Christ has said elsewhere, we believe and so He will provide. And as Scripture clearly testifies, the exercise of true prayer is an exercise of prayer by the person and mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to ask things in His name. We have a beautiful picture of this in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 where we're reminded that we have a great high priest. Verse 14. And so what are we to do? We're to draw nigh. We're to come boldly unto the throne of grace. Verse 16. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our prayers are offered to God, the triune God, by the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest. So children, if you were asked, do you have a priest? As we've asked in our classes before, in one sense you can say, well, what do you mean? Because no, I don't have an earthly priest because priests have been done away with by the coming of the new covenant. But we do have a heavenly and true high priest. I have a priest. We have a priest. The only true priest of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is Christ Himself. And as the worshipers of God under the Old Covenant drew near to God and presented their offerings to the priest who then presented them to God, so we come to Him who is God incarnate, who is appointed as our High Priest after the order of Melchizedek, and we offer to God praise by Him. And the beautiful picture, both in Hebrews and Revelation, is that Christ gathers up our prayers and presents them as beautiful incense in the presence of God. And God then, through Christ, provides us these answers. Well, there's much more that can be said about prayer, but these are the things. So children, perhaps you're learning to pray and your parents have taught you, you know, we conclude prayers or we insert occasionally this expression, in Christ's name or in Jesus' name. That's not some superstitious tack on It's not like the end of a letter, sincerely. It is an expression acknowledging that we draw near to God for the things we seek in and by the person and work of Christ. It's by Him that I draw near. And that expression is expressing our acknowledging of the same. Now, if this is what prayer is, notice that Christ is saying that He wants us to pray and faint not, that we ought always to pray. And in context, he specifies this uh, suffering of his people. And notice, avenging God's cause. So the people are pictured as drawing near to God and saying, Lord, look how we suffer. We aren't told to what degree, but perhaps we can entertain the lesser and the greater. We can consider outright persecution of sword and gun and other such things. We can consider the lesser forms of that, the ridicule and the difficulties we encounter because it is that we stand for Christ. And you'll notice that there's a little picture of that later in this chapter when there will be the need for some to leave their house or parents or brethren or children for the kingdom of God's sake. And so they're suffering on account of following Christ. And they're crying out to God, Oh God, would you look with favor 
and deliver us from wicked men. And brethren, perhaps we can see that today as we look around and we see wicked men. We see in our nation, we see in the churches, we see in the world, and we see wickedness prevailing. And we pray, God, for the sake of Jesus Christ, bless your people. Your word says that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we look at the earth and we say, where is the fulfilling of these things? We've prayed for it. We can mark seasons of earnest desiring of it. And perhaps that wave passes and we stop. But constant, unfailing prayer is the persevering in seeking those things which God has promised. A minister in our denomination has testified without boasting, but in private counsel that's been public and so on, in various ways, how he's not ceased praying every day for true God-sent revival and every day for the conversion of the Jews as promised throughout the Scriptures. And here's a man who is, as the Scriptures say, of hoary head, his hair is white, he's lived and is near on the brink of uh, being welcomed into a happy eternity, and yet day by day passes, and never does a day pass without his earnest supplicating of God for the fulfilling of his word. That's unfailing prayer. Now, we can find the contrast often in ourselves, how we start with zeal, and then we cool and give over. Well, consider then what it is that serve as obstacles for this constant prayer. Well, assuming that the prayers, of course, as described for things agreeable to God's Word in the name of Christ and offered in faith, what are the obstacles that present themselves and trip us up? Well, we can acknowledge that one such obstacle is the things that are seen. And this is embedded in the text. So notice, Christ says, though he bear long with them. The idea is that they're praying for the Lord's deliverance, and yet as they look around, they see no changing of their circumstances. Here they're being chased from this city to the next city. Here is a group of believers being drawn to various coliseums and put to death. Here are those who are losing their jobs and their inability, or they gain an inability to purchase and other such things. Persecution's coming. And as they look around and they pray and they gather for their prayer meetings and they gather in public and they gather in secret and they gather personally before the throne of grace, they look around and what can be said is this, nothing is changing. I don't see any change. In fact, it seems to me that things are actually worsening. Remember Asaph's great struggle in Psalm 73. He saw the prosperity of the wicked. And when he saw that, it was then that he was tempted to slip, to give over, and to struggle. Remember Job, when he saw everything stripped from him, his body, his health, his children, his lands, his riches, what was the counsel of his wife? His wife counseled Job, curse God and die, give up, look at everything. Why would you maintain your trust? Why would you persevere? And this is, of course, a temptation common to us all. We pray, perhaps, for the conversion of our children. And instead of seeing them converted, though we've prayed ever earnestly, we see them seemingly hardened. 
We pray for the advance of true religion. And instead of seeing that with any display of influence, we see false religion increase. We see corruptions of Christianity multiplied. We pray for personal growth. And instead of personal growth, we're left, as it were, to face our own remaining sins and iniquities. We pray for growth and we are met with afflictions and trials. The sight is a large argument for our giving over. You can hear this in worldly ways, nothing sinful necessarily, but in the world, you know, well, I've tried this and I've tried that, I guess I should just give up. This is the thing that grips us sometimes in our prayer. I've prayed this, I've prayed that, I've prayed for a week, I've prayed for a month, I've prayed for a year, I've prayed for 10 years, nothing's changed, everything I see is as it was, or is in fact worse than it was. So I'm just going to sort of slip on by that and ignore it henceforth. Brethren, that's not maturing, and it's not growth in grace. It is, as Christ says, fainting. It is the discovery of weakness before the throne of grace. Related to that, another obstacle is the delay. It's related to sight, of course, but the delay is a specific form of it. And so it's something that we're earnestly seeking, and yet instead of receiving it in the timing that we desire to receive it, it's deferred and it's put off. And of course, it's as Christ says, as if God bears long with them. Do you remember the ridicule that Peter acknowledges in his second epistle? He says these godless men are chiding the believers with what? They say, where is the sign of his coming? You believe that this Jesus Christ who died and rose again is going to come again? Well, everything's continuing the same way it's been since he died and rose again, since the creation was first made. And Peter says, of this are they willingly ignorant, because they ignore the fact that the world is not the same as it once was because of the flood and judgment that was meted out upon the earth. And second off, they challenge the faithfulness of the faithful God. And so he appeals to God's people to live not by what is seen, nor by the perceived delays, but to live by faith in the God who has promised, which brings us to the third of these obstacles. We can look at sight and delays as things that are in some sense outside of us. We look and we see the way that society is. We look and we see the way that my persecutors behave. We look and see at the way unbelievers are carrying on. Departures and heresies and other such things are growing. We look and see no sign of the promises. These are delayed. Those are outside of us. But there is that which is within us, and that is the weakness of our own faith. It's interesting. What is Christ doing? He's reminding them of the faithfulness of God. And so notice the reproof that is tacked on at the end. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? He is, as it were, saying, Here, look at my finger. I'll point to where the greatest obstacle is found. And we expect him to point outside. We expect him to point at another person. We expect him to point, as it were, at some thing some person, some difficulty around us. And he takes the finger and he places it square in our breast and says, there is the biggest obstacle. 
It's within you. It's your weakness, your unwillingness to believe what God has promised. That's the biggest obstacle. It's similar to what Christ says. It's not the same, but it's similar when he says, listen, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, because what he eats and drinks, it passes through his system. But it's what comes out of a man. For out of the heart, man you know, does all of these wicked things. The point is, the biggest issue is the heart of man. And, we can be more specific, even the heart of the believer. And so remember Thomas, he who was privileged with seeing the miracles of Christ, and yet he doubts. He says, listen, I saw the scars, I saw the nails, I saw the spear, I saw and I heard Christ say, it's finished, I saw all those things, I will not believe, except I place my finger in his holes and my hand in his side. Really, the issue that Thomas is expressing is, my heart is unwilling to believe your testimony and the promises that Christ gave prior to his death. What's he getting at? He was expressing his own personal struggle within. Brethren, we are able to point to other things as Christ is helping us see. We're able to say, well, this is sort of the provoking cause, but we can't say the provoking cause is the cause of our failing to continue in prayer. The the cause is our faith which is weakened. If we believe that God is faithful to His Word, we will continue to petition and petition and petition for His fulfilling of it. This then brings us thirdly to the support for constant prayer. Christ provides this to us by way of contrast. Notice the wicked man, the unjust judge, the godless and loveless one. He says, I'll avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. So he's not moved by compassion. He's not moved by justice. He's not moved by his office. He's not moved by her weakness and sorrows and so on. But notice the contrast. If this is what the unjust judge saith, shall not God avenge his own elect? Now, remember what Christ will say when this man comes to him later, good master. And he says, why callest thou me good? None is good, save one that is God. Now, he's not denying his divinity. He's directing this man to consider well what he said. But for our purpose, notice that. None is good but God. Do you remember how Christ says, listen, you are evil. And as fathers who are evil, you know how to give your children good gifts. If your son comes to you and says, can I have bread or a fish? You don't give them a stone or a serpent. You give them food to eat. If a sick child says, can I have just a sin? A mother who is still influenced by sin doesn't say whatever. She goes and gets a cup of water and gives to her son or daughter that's desiring this cup. And if that's true, as Christ says, of those who are tainted by sin, what should we think of God who is untainted, has no shadow, no whisper, no hint, nothing 
of evil, nothing of selfishness, nothing of evil and wickedness within. He who is only and summarily and comprehensively and perfectly good. If this is who God is, and the unjust judge rises up to give help to this widow, how much more should we think of God who is good, caring for his own? What does a good one do? Remember when God testifies of himself, proclaiming his name, the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and merciful, long-suffering, and so on. He's praised as the God of compassion. He's praised as the one who loves us and is concerned with us. We're reminded, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 4, that Christ is of such uh, character toward us, he being incarnate and suffering himself, is not untouched by the of our infirmities, but was on all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. What's the point? God is saying Christ knows you. He understands you. He knows the pains and the realities and sorrows and difficulties that you face. How does He know that? Because He faced them. He was touched by the feeling of our infirmities. He was attacked without cause. He was misrepresented. He was called a legalist. He was called a wine-bibber. He was called all of these different things wrongly. His mother and and brethren misunderstood him and ridiculed him as one who had lost his mind. The teachers of God's Word, the Pharisees, looked at him and denounced him as one who was working by the work of Satan. He was attacked by Satan himself. All of these things forsaken by the closest of his friends, his own chosen and beloved disciples. All of these things he knew. He knew what it was to forsake house and home, mother and brother and sister and everyone else. He knew what it was to go without a home. He knew all of these things. And so there's no one who can stand up before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you don't know the pain that I'm facing. You don't understand the temptations I am enduring. You don't understand the difficulties that surround and engulf me. None can compare to Christ's sufferings. And here's the good news. Christ, out of compassion, is moved toward us in our sufferings. So you'll see the principle, shall not God avenge His own elect? And yet embedded in that is this galaxy, this universe of great comfort. This God who is good is a God who is good toward His people. And so the support is to remember, yes, it's a delay. Yes, it's a struggle. Yes, it's a difficulty. Here's the plane of what I'm experiencing. But above and even in and through all of these things is the certainty and the promise that God who rules over all things is a God who is compassionate toward me. And instantly Satan arises and says, yes, but if God were good, would you suffer this way? If God were faithful, would you endure these things? Brethren, this is nothing new. It's the very thing that Christ endured. Do you remember when Christ fasted for 40 days? He goes into the wilderness. And what is it that Satan says? You know, if you're the Son of God, turn these rocks into bread. Embedded in that is this. You know, if you're the Son of God, a father loves his son, surely he'll give him nourishment. What's the point? Satan's coming to Christ. And he's saying, 
Well, let's just consider, well, is your father good? If he were good, would he so allow you to endure these things as you're enduring them? The same tactics are applied today again and again to his people, but the support is to remember, I look to God who is good and faithful. And this isn't just sort of leaping into the dark as the world loves to express faith. It is actually firmly planting ourselves upon the clear testimony of the whole of the history of God's faithfulness throughout all generations. So you can look backwards. And whereas we can say, you know, looking forward, there's a lot of uncertainty as to what the circumstances are going to turn out to be. It's not true looking backwards. It's as if the Son of God's providence has broken upon all history so that we can see Joseph. And as we're seeing him, we see him you know, despised by his brothers, sold into slavery, wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife, imprisoned, forgotten by those in prison, and so on. All these things, wave after wave, coming to him. But we look back and the sun shines brightly and we see him on the last of his days. And there he is with his brothers and father as he was foretold by vision that they should bow before him. And he sees that. We see that. We see Job and all of the darkness that engulfed his life and the sorrows and the pain and the difficulty that chronicled his existence for a long season. And yet we also see him restored and healthy and strong. We see the suffering of Christ and the darkness of the earth and his crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We see his lifeless body taken from the cross and placed into the tomb. But we also see the first day of the week, where Christ arose. And we also see Christ ascending into heaven. And we have all of these innumerable instances of God's faithfulness to circumstances, let's be frank, which far outdo our circumstances today. We have troubles and trials. We don't mean to demean that. But what in God's great wisdom He has supplied for us are circumstances that are far worse than ours today, and God's faithfulness displayed to those. For what reason? So that we would be assured that though I can't see much beyond this next step, and there are all sorts of snarling creatures and difficulties and pains that I know are there before me, yet I am assured of God who has been faithful and has promised will be faithful going forward. The support is God. That's the support for constant prayer. It's what God is. It's what God has done. It's what God has promised. It's that He does remember. It's the certainty, as Christ says in verse 8, I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Sometimes people get lost and, well, why so many words? Why doesn't Christ just say, listen, He's going to avenge you speedily? By saying, I tell you, think of who's telling. It's Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not telling you something that I've heard secondhand. I am telling you. God will do it. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, shall He find faith? On the earth. Well, brethren, if God is to find faith on the earth, it will be a faith that He gives, as faith is a gift of God, and it is a faith which He will sustain as we look to Him who is faithful. As we close, 
We can close by raising this. If we are to pray constantly without fainting, we must secure several things to our understanding. And the first of them must be God's faithfulness. We must start there. You know, sometimes people will say, and there's need for it, you know, can't we have a more practical book or a practical lecture or practical teaching or this or that? And there's need for practical things. But what people often forget who are asking for the practical instruction is all of the practice in the world makes, gives no help unless there is the foundation for that practice and on which that practice stands. The practice of prayer, understand this, Christ is exhorting to a practice that we pray and faint not. But how does he do it? He doesn't say, so this is what you need to do. Set three hours each day. You know, make sure you organize this. Make sure you do that. Those things can be helpful tactics and practices and so on. But actually what he does is he clears it all and says, you need to remember God. That's fundamental. If you are to be constant in prayer, you must secure unto your mind and your soul and be saturated and nourished by the truth of what God is and particularly what God is to you. God has chosen you. He's placed His love upon you. And so you can see a few things. God, election, sovereign love, His compassion, all of these things must be known if ever we are to be constant in prayer. And the simple fact is this. Many people say, you know, I'm struggling with prayer and all these things. If they would step back and look at it, where they're really struggling is their clarity of understanding who and what God is. And so they try to manage all of these tactical and, you know, sort of strategic things. And all of them may be good or bad for that matter. But unless they come back to the fact of what God is and what God is to them, they'll never be able to put in practice all of those tactics and strategies and approaches. If we are to pray in the way that Christ presents, we must start with the God to whom we pray and the God who is to us our God. Isn't it astounding that when God reproves His people throughout the Old Testament and the New, it's often in context of saying, I'm the Lord your God. And so before He gives the Ten Commandments, what does He say? I am the Lord your God, which have delivered you and so forth. Here is the bedrock of all practice, knowing God. Not just being able to you know, rattle off definitions and so on, but our souls communing with Him that then leads us unto all faithfulness. Surely this discovers a weakness in us that we should often stop and stumble and cease to pray because we don't receive in our timing or in our way what we think we should. But Christ is exhorting us to pray and to pray without failing. So how do we go about that? Well, as we've said, we start with God but we consider well His promises, we consider well our needs, and we draw near to Him through Christ and say, Lord, help me in my prayer, sustain me in my prayer, give me grace to maintain faith, to approach You day by day, to ask, to seek, to knock, to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking, because You who has promised, You are faithful. So girded by what God is and what He has promised, We pray, give unto us, and oh, what a provision, the spirit of supplication and prayer.
Because, brethren, your constant praying is not something that you produce yourselves. It is the gift of God by His Spirit. So we go to God and say, if ever I should fail not in prayer, I have need that your Spirit would be given unto me. And so I come and I pray as the psalmist does, quicken me, enliven me, give unto me your Spirit, lead me in these ways. Think of the way the bride says, draw me and we will run after thee. Brethren, with the year before us as the Lord gives us life, the day before us as the Lord gives us life, let us lean upon our beloved and seek from him the promised things, confident that he who is promised is faithful. Would you stand with me for prayer?